This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. So this morning is a little bit challenging. Um, so I'm going to try to condense everything in this book into an hour and a quarter. <laughs> at least, at least some of the highlights. Um, but I guess underlying the entire intention for speaking this morning is to address the question that really affects almost everyone on different spiritual paths, no matter what path it might be, and that is how to take what we experience on a retreat like this into our lives. It's very easy to have a hit of an experience. You know, we get high and open and maybe occasionally blissful, and all kinds of things can happen in this kind of environment. But to quote Jack's, one of the titles of his book, after the ecstasy, the laundry. Yes. You know, and so, you know, a few days, we'll all be going home, caught up in the busyness of our lives. What do we do with what we experienced here? How do we bring it into our lives? How do we integrate it into our lives? So that's uh, some of what I'd like to talk about this morning. Because there, there are methodologies for making one's life, one's practice, not as a concept, you know, not as <clears throat> some theory. It would be a nice idea to be loving all the time. And, oh yes, it would be great if I could be generous boundlessly. But caught in the, in the busyness of our lives, often those aspirations... Um, can sink a little lower in the list of our priorities. So the question really is, you know, what do we do with this? How do we, <clears throat> how do we practice it? Are there methodologies for bringing it to our lives? Because the foundation, really, for anything we do in that regard 
is having some kind of regular meditation practice, whatever it may be. There are many forms of meditation and they all have value in their own ways. Uh, but since I spent so many years working on that, I thought I'd speak about the particular methodology of mindfulness. Uh, and I'd like to start just to get us settled with a short sit so we actually can drop into the experience of it rather than our thoughts about it. And one of the most useful guidelines really for any meditation practice, particularly for this, uh, keep it simple. You know, it's not complicated. My first teacher, Manindraji, would say, be simple and easy. Must be, he said that, I must have heard it like a million times, be simple and easy. So whenever I would get caught up in my own stuff and that thought would oh, just be simple and easy. Come back to the body, come back to the breath, come back to being present. It's not hard. And to show you, to demonstrate just how easy it is, this is an exercise that I had thought to do for maybe five or ten minutes, but given the constraints of time, we'll do it just for like 40 seconds. <laughs> but if you get it, it will transform your entire spiritual path. And you will not believe how simple it is. In fact, that's the problem. You won't believe it. So we're going to do one very simple exercise. If you're willing, let's just spend a couple of minutes, which may seem like an hour to you, simply moving your arm back and forth. And feel it moving. You could vary the speed if you like. Just move it and feel it moving. Is there anybody who doesn't feel their arm moving? Do you have to do anything special? Are you making any special effort to feel it moving? You can dance. You still feel it moving? Are you efforting? Are you forcing? Are you struggling? No. <laughs> That's it. You can go home. It's no more than that. It's like if we're not distracted. I mean, obviously, if you, we were doing that and you were lost in your thoughts or fantasies or plans, in those moments, you wouldn't be feeling it moving. You'd be lost in your thought. But when we're not distracted, when we're simply being present, it's a completely effortless awareness. It's just the movement is being known. Every experience can be framed in that way. But what I found so interesting is that when we do this exercise with the arm moving, it seems so obvious to everybody. 
how effortless it is. And yet, even when we, we haven't done it here, but when we usually teach the walking meditation, you know, paying attention to the movement of the feet and the legs in movement, for some mysterious reason, as soon as we move from the arm to the leg, it's like we're struggling to pay attention. Are we more in love with our arms than our legs? <laughs> it's just conditioning. It's just the habit. In walking meditation, we've already created the concept, oh, I'm meditating. Oh, I have to do it right. You know, what's, how am I supposed to walk? And yet, if we're just moving our arm and feeling it, there's no, there's no problem. There's no struggle. There's complete ease. It's just moving and you're feeling it. It's the same thing in walking. When you begin walking, just, just walk and feel the movement, feel the touch. It doesn't take any particular effort at all. But it does take one particular capacity of mind to keep us in that simplicity. And that capacity of mind is mindfulness. Because if we're either moving our arms or legs or just moving about and in the simplicity of simply feeling the movement, we're being present, we're being here now, when the mind starts to wander, as it almost always will, thoughts will come up and you know, plans, memories, fantasies. If we're not mindful that that's happened, then we hop on those trains of association and it could be 30 seconds, a minute, 10 minutes, half an hour before we hop off the train. So it's mindfulness when we're moving with mindfulness added to the basic simplicity, simplicity of knowing the awareness, the mindfulness is, you might say, staying alert for the arising of thoughts or other objects that might take us away if we weren't being mindful. So mindfulness keeps us right on track with what we're doing and shows us when we're off. And in that moment of realizing we've been lost, no judgment, no problem, no struggle, because we're already mindful that we're lost. We recognize that. Simply come back to the movement, to the breath, to the body. So far, so good? Okay, simple. Simple and easy. Okay, let's sit for maybe 10 minutes just to, to kind of drop into this. Uh, in the same way that you experience the ease of feeling the arm moving, no struggle, no problem. You're just moving the arm and feeling it. See if you can imagine... Don't take this literally. It's like... Just imagine that in feeling the breath, the breath is your arm. Because you've already experienced how easy it is to be mindful of the arm moving. It's exactly the same thing with the breath. No struggle needed, no forcing. We're breathing anyway. The body breathes. We don't have to do anything to call the next breath in, to make it a certain way. We just settle back. aware of the body sitting. As I mentioned the other morning, there is a body. So just settle in now. 
sit and know you're sitting. There is a body, simple. And within that framework, you may well become aware of the sensations of the body breathing all by themselves. Don't try to change the breath, don't force it, don't pull it in. Just sit, know you're sitting. And simply be aware of what the body is doing as you're sitting. The body is breathing. If you begin to slip into some old pattern of struggle or wanting or some kind of unease, simply go back to there is a body. Let everything settle. And within that framework, that larger framework, there is a body. Within that, you might become aware of the body breathing or might become aware of sounds, hearing. There's nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. Simply phenomena arising and changing and passing. There is a body, within it the body breathes, come aware of hearing, and see if you can become aware of thoughts or images just as they arise, of thinking, of seeing. And as one special meditative challenge this morning, with whatever you become aware of, the breath, the body, body sensations, sounds, thoughts, whatever you become aware of in the moment, also notice, if you can, that it changes. might be the changes of the flowing sensations of the breath, might be the changes of a bodily sensation arising and passing away, might be the changes of the vibrations within a sound.
might be the change of discomfort getting stronger or weaker or disappearing. So the practice is relaxing into the flow of changes. There's nothing special you have to do. Things are changing by themselves. They arise, they appear, they change in some way, they disappear. And it's all a flow of phenomena. And whenever the mind feels like it's getting confused or too many things, you're not sure what exactly to be aware of, simply come back to there is a body. Reground yourself in that simplicity. Feeling each breath. And in the last minute or so of the meditation, you might apply one very simple technique which sometimes can be very helpful. And that is to sit with a half smile. That's part of the lightening up. When you're ready, you can open your eyes, reconnect with being in the room, seeing the people around you. Okay. So now a speed trip through the book. <laughs> if we have time, and it's, it's a bit short, there were three questions regarding mindfulness that I wanted to at least briefly uh, explore this morning. The first question is, what is mindfulness? What is it and what isn't it? what it is and what it isn't. Because especially as it has become so widespread and popular in our culture and spreading out in so many different ways, um, 40 years ago, we definitely should have copyrighted the word. <laughs> because... Um, but there's also a lot of misunderstanding of what mindfulness actually is. Now, so if somebody comes up and asks me, or asks you, you know, well, what exactly is mindfulness? Maybe the first response, the first intuitive response, especially in this crowd, might be, well, be here now. You know, be in the present moment, live in the present moment, rather than lost in past, lost in future. So that's a beginning. It's the beginning of understanding the domain, the power of mindfulness. 
But as we explore it further, we begin to see that there are many different ways of being here now. And some of those ways involve mindfulness, and some do not. It's possible to be here now completely unmindful. So as my favorite example of that, I presume most of you are familiar with uh, Black Labs, the dogs. Fun. They are fun dogs. (laughs) They're my main meta object. (laughs) I just have to think of (laughs) it. So these Black Labs, they're living in the present. As far as we can tell, they are totally engaged and interactive with their various sense, uh, sense experience. You know, and they're running around having fun and playing and they're being here now. Now this may be my human prejudice, but when I look, they just don't seem to be mindful. That's not the word that comes when I'm watching them do their fun thing. So they're living in the present, but they don't appear to be mindful. So mindful must mean something else in addition to being present. So it's like being present is necessary but not sufficient. There has to be some other quality to really make it mindful. So then when we look, okay, these black labs don't seem to be mindful. What's missing? When we practice, you know, in ourselves, we begin to see that part of mindfulness is not just being being present in the way a black lab might be, but actually there's a certain observing power of the mind where, I'm not sure this will express it exactly, but it's almost as if we know that we're knowing rather than just being totally identified in the experience. So I I call that the observing power of the mind. So that's another dimension that we need to add to being in the present. That begins to flesh out a little bit some of the unique qualities of mindfulness. So we're observing and we kind of know we're observed. So you're feeling the breath and you're observing the breath or a sensation. And there's there's a certain awareness that you are observing it. You know, maybe you could call it metacognition, M-E-T-A. But when we look more carefully, even at that, we see, hmm... That may not be sufficient either. Because we can be in the present, we can be here now, we can add to that that observing power of mind so we really know what we're connecting with. But as I mentioned the other morning, we can be observing experience, whether internal or external, through all kinds of filters. You know, I mentioned the difference between recognition and mindfulness. We can recognize what's present, a thought, a sensation, a sound, another person, a situation. We can recognize, we can be observing, 
But how are we observing? Are we observing through the filter of our conditioned desire or wanting? So we're looking at something filtered by a certain kind of greed. Or are we observing something, and I talked about this with regard to fear, but it could be almost any unpleasant situation, pain in the body, discomfort in the body, a difficult situation, a difficult person. Are we present and observing, but is it through the filter of aversion, of dislike? If that filter is there, then again, it's not mindfulness. We're present, we're observing, we're recognizing what it is, but it's still not mindfulness. So now we're beginning to hone in on the very special quality that made it worth writing 400 pages. <laughs> Because mindfulness means this special quality of being in the present and observing and recognizing. And that special quality of mindfulness is that we're doing all this at least temporarily freed from the old habit patterns of wanting and pushing away, of desire and aversion. Right. So as I said, with the fear for so long, I had been thinking I was being mindful, but it wasn't because I was observing it so that it would go away. There was that in order to mind. We can see that a lot with physical pain in the body. Very common, you know, we're sitting very often in meditation, we feel discomfort. That's part of it, it's part of having a body. There's no one who experiences only pleasant sensations in this human realm. Our life is this mix. But how are we relating to it? The conditioned response, and it goes so deep. I mean, it goes really deep. You know, you go up to anybody on the street. Do you like pleasant? Yeah. Do you want unpleasant? No. <laughs> this, is, this is our condition. We like what's pleasant and we don't like what's unpleasant. But that conditioning that's a very deep conditioning within us, within all of us, that's what keeps us imprisoned. And so the challenge and the power of mindfulness is that it gives us an opportunity to decondition those responses, to see that it's totally possible and freeing to experience the pleasant, like being here. Almost everything is so pleasant here. You know, and it's Lovely. But can we experience the pleasant without the tendency of holding, of grasping, of even wanting it to continue? And could we experience whatever unpleasant may come, come up without pushing away? It's okay to feel unpleasant. This is a hard one to get because most of us do not believe it. You know, we think it's not okay to feel the unpleasant. But that's a big problem because 
a good part of our lives will present us with unpleasant situations. That's just going to be part of living. If we have cut ourselves off, oh, it's okay to feel pleasant, but it's not okay to feel unpleasant, how are we going to be living our lives? Extremely defensively. You know, it's as if we're going to create a little comfort zone and try to protect that comfort zone and nothing unpleasant comes in. It's completely futile and stressful and it's not an easeful way to live. So mindfulness, and this is the great gift of mindfulness towards ease of life, of happiness of life, because mindfulness actually lets us settle back, being in the present, observing power of mind, but without that conditioned filter of wanting and not wanting, you know, of desire and aversion. We're just, we're like an open window. You know, the mindfulness just creates that open space in which all phenomena arise, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, but we stay in that openness. So this is possible. We can actually experience this. And, and this is perhaps the most important message, it's a practice. You know, we can hear these words and many of the beautiful words have been expressed all week about generosity and about love and all of it. It takes practice. And you each may find your own particular practice that resonates with you, but it doesn't just happen by itself. You know, we're all the product of our conditioning and our conditioning varies a lot. It's mindfulness which actually shows us, it, it reveals us the patterns of our conditioning and the possibility of letting go of those uh, tendencies that just entangle us in suffering. And then working with the possibility, of, no, I can settle back, this pain is okay, I can feel it. This difficult emotion, fear, anger, jealousy, whatever it is, if we're not caught up in the story of it, then we can settle back simply into being mindful of the energy of the emotion, the way it manifests in our body, our heart, our mind. We're just there with that experience, without pushing it away, without holding on, without identifying with it. And then all these difficult experiences also simply become part of the passing show. And our hearts, our minds, relaxed, they're, they're at greater ease. Okay, so that's question number one. What is mindfulness and what isn't it? So, everybody get an A on this? <laughs> okay, let's go to question B. This is actually just pass-fail. So. Question B, very important question, because there's often a big gap between question one and question two as people are entering into the practice. So the first question is just what is mindfulness, you know, and what looks like it but isn't. The second question is what do we learn from being mindful? So the the goal of the practice is not mindfulness per se. 
mindfulness and many of the other you know, methodologies, they, they are a methodology for deepening understanding. And so the real question is, okay, we practice being mindful and we have our minds a little more centered with what's arising and we're there, and, but then what are we learning? Now, what's the wisdom that comes from being mindful? So this is why I suggested at the beginning of the, retreat, of the sitting, one mm, transforming wisdom aspect of the practice, and it's not hard to see, although it's hard to sustain seeing it, is that whatever arises in our experience, anything in our bodies, in our minds, emotions, thoughts, feelings, internal, external, whatever arises will also pass away. And that line, just that one line, is found in a lot of the Buddhist uh, discourses. And it's a line that when people hear, some number of people get enlightened just hearing that line. So I'm going to repeat it. <laughs> it's like you never know. <laughs> but take it in. So don't, don't just... The transformative power is not this understanding as an intellectual understanding. The transformative depth, the, the depth of that transformation that can take place happens when we drop that line into the core of our being and understanding. You know, so it's not kind of a fluffy little aphorism up here. Whatever has the nature to arise, which is everything. That's an important point. Whatever has the nature to arise in our experience will also pass away. And so the refinement of this perception of change is one of the things that we learn from being mindful. When we're mindful in the moment, moment after moment, we're seeing that thoughts come and go and sensations and sounds and emotions and people, everything. Everything is coming and going, arising and passing. Okay, so then you might ask, so what? <laughs> you know, because on an intellectual level, this just seems completely obvious. You know, you go up to anybody in the street and you say, you know, do things change? Oh yeah, yeah, everything changes. So it's not an esoteric truth. You know, it's something on the conceptual intellectual level we all know very well. However, there's a big often a big gap between what we know conceptually and how we're living our lives. And the transformative power of practicing mindfulness as a methodology for seeing the momentary change, it's only when we are living that experience moment to moment that's what affects the liberating quality of that wisdom. 
And this notion of liberation, although you know, different traditions may use different language to describe it, but in my understanding of at least many of the different spiritual traditions that I've come into contact with, there is one essence of the liberated mind, the liberated heart. And it's, it's often expressed in a phrase that's found in a lot of Buddhist texts, but in other, other traditions as well. Liberation through non-clinging. So it's non-clinging, non-grasping. The non-grasping mind, which is actually the experience of the mind that's free. So it doesn't mean not experiencing things. It has to do with how we're relating to what's being experienced. Are we relating with grasping, with clinging, with wanting, with desire? Or are we settled back into the mindfulness of this flow of changes where we simply become the flow? And we're not trying to dam the flow up with our various habitual responses. Liberation through non-clinging. So that might sound a little abstract, perhaps, or maybe some of you actually have touched that experience. But there's a very easy, there's a very easy feedback for us in our lives and in our meditation practice that act as a mindfulness spell to remind us that we are caught up in some way. Because it's very easy as we go through life. You know, here, here there's a lot of support and a lot of reminders of how to settle back into the ease of not holding on. But when we go back into the world, there's so many you know, forces at work and responsibilities, and we get so caught up in our worldly lives it's very difficult to remember, actually to remember the simplicity of all this, you know, because we're so caught up in the events. But one feedback that if we set the intention to pay attention to will be a tremendous help in actualizing everything that's being learned here out in the world. And that is to pay attention, set the intention to pay attention to times when you feel like you're struggling. That can happen in meditation very often. You know, people are sitting and for whatever reason, there's just, it's not flowing, it's not easeful. You know, the, the mind is struggling in some way or it could be some situation in life and we're in some kind of struggle. Well, here's a little teaching that I found really helpful. And I, I just noticed it over and over again in my own practice. And that is that struggle means just one thing. 
let me beg. I, I generally don't like to make absolute statements. <laughs> so let me say, struggle mostly means one thing. <laughs> Just give me a back door here. <laughs> Basically, what struggle means is that something is going on in our bodies, in our minds, in internal, external, in our meditation, in our worldly life, when we feel this sense of inner struggle, it simply means that something is going on, something has arisen that we are not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So struggle then, instead of being a problem, actually becomes this amazing feedback. It's like waking us up. So I'll just give you a few examples, and this comes out of meditation practice, but again, it can be applied just to our lives. You're sitting and you find yourself in some kind of struggle. You might then ask the question, what's my experience that I'm not accepting right now? And it might be some discomfort in the body. And you're trying to stay with the breath, just in, out, in, out. But there's some pain or discomfort. If we're not open, if we don't become mindful of that discomfort and accepting of it, it's going to always be pulling. You know, we're trying to be with the breath and the discomfort is pulling us. That's the struggle. As soon as we see that, settling, oh, this pain, this discomfort, it's okay. Just let me feel it. The struggle is gone. Maybe you're sitting and you're having a lot of thoughts. You know, you're trying to be with the body, with the breath, but the mind is just running wild. Tons of thoughts going through. You're in a struggle. You know, why can't I sit properly? Struggle is the feedback. It's saying something is going on you're not accepting. In this case, it's not accepting the fact that there are a lot of thoughts. Why make a problem of it? Just sit back. Lots of thoughts happening. And the mind just comes back to a sense of ease. That experience will pass just like all others. Or maybe there's some, you know, unpleasant mood that you may not even be aware of, but it's just coloring everything, coloring your experience. You know, maybe you just feel down or heavy. Or if it's a sense of struggle, open up. What am I not accepting? Oh, feeling down. Okay, this is okay too. This is another passing experience. You're getting this very simple thing, struggle, an indication that something is not being accepted, and it becomes an invitation then to settle back, open up, and just explore, okay, what is it that's going on that I'm not open to? And in this way, our practice both develops a lot of stability, a lot of maturity, we begin to really expand the possibilities of what we're able to be with in a mindful way. It's as if our comfort zone gets larger and larger and larger. Come to a place of struggle. Okay, what's going on? Oh, can I accept this? Shh. The zone just got a little bigger. We got to another edge. Shh. Okay. Can I open here? Can I relax here? And my vision of 
the Buddha and Maharaji and great enlightened beings would be a mind without boundaries. No boundaries. Everything is acceptable. A mind without boundaries is a mind without fear. And then it's just phenomena. Empty phenomena rolling on. Okay, so this is some of what we learn from being mindful. Right? So you're clear about what mindfulness is and what it isn't. You know, it's not just being in the present. It's being present in a certain way. Observing power, but observing without the filter of desire and aversion. So it's like observing as if through an open window. Right? There's just space. And then in that mindfulness, we learn that everything is changing. And then one more little freeing aspect of seeing the truth of change. What happens when you hold on, when you're trying to hold on to something which in its nature changes? So you're holding on tight, but in its nature is changing. Somebody once described it as rope burn. You know, the rope is being pulled through. The tighter we try to hold on, the more rope burn we're going to get. The more we hold on to that which in its nature changes, we suffer. If you happen to live in the Northeast and you're attached to being on Maui, (laughs) it's going to be a difficult trip home. (laughs) But if you're mindful of the pleasantness of being in Maui, and sometimes I go around, I'm just saying to myself, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. (laughs) The water, the sun, the beach, it's it's just all so pleasant there. (laughs) And then I think of you know, 15 degrees in New England. <laughs> but if I'm attached to things staying a certain way, it's going to be painful going back. If I'm not attached, if it's just pleasant now, go through its own changes, unpleasant icy winds, that's okay too. And the mind really stays free. So this is, this is the transformative wisdom of experiencing, not intellectually, experiencing moment to moment the truth that everything is changing moment to moment. Because that's what deconditions the grasping. When we see it, again, not just think it, when we are actually experiencing, perceiving the continual flow, that's what deconditions that deeply rooted tendency to grasp. And we begin to become like that wise monkey when holding on in that monkey trap I mentioned, you know, learns to open its hand, slip out and be free. Okay. So that's the second question. First, what is mindfulness and what isn't? So we really have a clear understanding of what we're practicing. Then what we learn from being mindful that everything is a process of constant change and that 
the more we hold on to that which changes, the more we suffer. It's so obvious. But we totally forget it, you know, in our lives. Okay, so the third question I wanted to address is, okay, given all this, and really the... the, uh, the powerful personal transformation that can take place as we develop mindfulness and the wisdom that comes from it and the liberation of non-clinging, not holding on and just being in that flow of changes. The third question that is so important, I think perhaps will be particularly uh, it's relevant for everybody, but with this crowd, I think you, you will really attune to this a lot, is what role does mindfulness play in the development of compassion? So it's not just, we're doing this practice not just for ourselves. We have to do it for ourselves in order to be able to relate and to help others. If we just bring to the world our own confusion, what we're contributing to the world is confusion. If we can bring to the world our own deepening understanding, our own deepening wisdom and freedom and compassion, so then that becomes a powerful combination of qualities for skillful engagement in the world, for active engagement in the world. So we might ask, well, what does mindfulness have to do with compassion? The way the term compassion is used in the Buddhist tradition, but I think it's fairly universal, is that it's the open-hearted response to suffering. When, when we come face-to-face to suffering, if if we are filled with metta, if we do have loving-kindness, if we are aware, if we are mindful, in the face of suffering, there is a natural move. Compassion arises spontaneously as a, as a spontaneous responsiveness in that moment. And my favorite uh, expression of compassion was actually the title of a book that Ramdas and Paul Gorman wrote a million years ago. The name of the book was How Can I Help? And I love that title. Because that is the activation of compassion. That's the move of compassion. And I like to make the distinction between compassion as a feeling and compassion as responsiveness. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, he, he, he used the phrase, compassion is a verb. Right? The essence of compassion is not simply that we feel for the suffering of others, which, which is more in the domain of empathy 
you know, where we can really feel ourselves into what another person is feeling. But compassion, in a way, is something more powerful. Compassion brings us close, most intimate with the suffering that's there, but with the motive, how can I help? And I found, just as a general practice now going through life, and this ties back to the whole discussion of generosity and how we can practice generosity. As we go through our lives, you know, with all the interactions and people and relationships and work and everything we're involved in, just think what it would be like if in the back of your heart-mind It's engraved someplace, engraved on emptiness. How can I help? If that becomes the, that becomes one of the core uh, frameworks for how we live. I find it so beautiful because there are limitless possibilities for how we can help in very small ways, sometimes in very big ways. If we're holding that, how can I help? So then as different situations arise, we're motivated to do what we can do. Now, here's where mindfulness supports or is the gateway to compassion. What prevents us from living in that space. Because I think we could all agree that it would be a beautiful space to live in, to, to walk through the world. You know, well, how can I help in this situation or in this situation? And it's not, you know, it's not like a little mantra that we're driving ourselves crazy with. It's just, it's just a certain openness of heart, an attitude. How can I help? But what is an obstacle to that a deeply habituated obstacle is the understanding that compassion arises, that sense of how can I help, arises when we're willing to come close to suffering. Compassion is the response to suffering. So for compassion to arise, we have to be willing to come close to it, to open to it. But as we all know, from very mundane things to very big things, as I mentioned earlier, our minds are not immediately conditioned to come close to suffering. You know, when you sit down in meditation and all of a sudden your back is killing you, oh, good, let me, let me be with this. It's probably not the first, maybe you'll get there, but it's probably not the first Response. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't like this. Uh, how can, what can I do to get rid of it? If that's the attitude, we're not coming close to the suffering, we're not actually feeling it, and so it's not a compassionate response. So there's, there's a million stories. A, a friend of mine, this goes back years, uh, she was having some medical procedure and they were trying to give her an IV. You know, and you know how sometimes they just don't get the vein. 
So in this situation, uh, the doctor was, you know, poking, couldn't get the vein. And it's it's not super painful, but it's distressing and it's difficult. And so he's kind of poking away, trying to get the vein. And my friend was clearly in some distress. And the only comment was, what's the matter? It doesn't hurt. And it was just an example of just not coming close to the suffering that was there. That's all. I mean, there was no ill. I'm not ascribing any ill intention at all to the doctor. He or she was probably trying to do their best. But there was no acknowledgement of the suffering or the pain that was actually there. You know? And so it was kind of dismissive. And there was no compassionate response. That's just one tiny little example. So I want to I want to read just a couple of uh, examples of compassionate response uh, in somewhat unusual ways, because it just it points to possibilities that we need not limit ourselves or have some idea. Oh well, I can only be compassionate this much, you know, and then. No, that edge is important. So, you familiar with uh, Dr. Paul Farmer? He, so, he, he's a public health doctor, uh, done hugely powerful, beautiful work, first in Haiti uh, with AIDS patients and then other health issues, and then many countries around the world uh, working with TB and done just fantastic work. And there's a beautiful book about his work called Mountains Beyond Mountains. Uh, and it's, it's hugely inspiring. So he set up this clinic in Haiti and people were coming from all over you know, and serving a lot of people. And then he heard about two people off in a village two days walk away. You know, and he was just moved to go and help them. But his colleagues got on his case a little bit because they said, you know, you could handle so many more people here and why are you wasting your time spending two days walking just to serve these people? It wasn't two days, it was seven hours. <laughs> so this is, what, this is what his response was. And I just, if we can get this, the world will be an infinitely better place. So this is what Paul Farmer said. If you say that seven hours walk is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong in the world. You know, it's, and we can see it. You know, when we look around in the world, lots of lives mean less. But for people on a path of opening, awakening, mindfulness, generosity, love, compassion, we need to address that. We need to address that tendency because I think for most of us, 
accepting the saints among us, there probably are places within us where some people matter less. So that's not to, this, this is the situation of our conditioning. Right? So it's not to get discouraged by that, but can we bring mindfulness to see it? You know, to see when we're pulling back and then, okay, can I open here? So there's one other story which is very dramatic and I don't necessarily suggest you follow in this person's footsteps. And if you do, let me know. So some years ago, there was an article in the New York Times about the subway hero. Okay, so this is the story. This guy was down in the subway in New York, and a woman had fallen on the tracks, and a train was coming. And without thinking, he jumped on the tracks, laid down on top of her, and let the train pass over them both. Wow. Right, wow. So this is what he said. He got a lot of... It was on the front page of, you know, it became a big story. And he was called the subway hero. <laughs> this is what he said. I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help. I did what I felt was right. I do construction work in confined spaces a lot. So I looked and my judgment was pretty right. The train did have enough room for me. <laughs> so again, you might not want to test your compassion in that way at first. <laughs> Do some construction work first. <laughs> okay, just to kind of wrap this little part up, it's just to understand that Mindfulness allows us to come close to suffering without pulling back from it out of aversion. We're willing to be with the suffering, that it's okay to feel pain, discomfort, to feel suffering of one kind or another. And as we open to it, that's what allows for the compassionate response to happen. Um, and so this is our practice, all of this, that's, that's why the spiritual practice is so beautiful, because all of these threads weave together. Now, generosity and love and mindfulness and compassion, they're all, they're all interweaving into this great stream of waking up and of service in the world. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour.